Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Uh, welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with Andrew Adams, partner at Oak HCFT. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Andrew. How's it going? Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Great, great, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, before we get into sort of the investing side, which you're awesome at, by the way, I love I, every time I look at your track record, I'm like, I know that company it was a good company. So uh, congratulations on that. I always got to like ask the question of, of how did you end up here? Um, what was your path? And was this a passion of yours? Was it a, was an, a fortunate accident in, in life? Or what was what, what got you into VC and healthcare in particular? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, healthcare goes way back to, you know, uh, my, my origins. Uh, I grew up in a small Texas town. My mother was a nurse, so it was kind of a part of our family from, from the from the early days. And uh, I grew up on a in a small Texas town uh, in central Texas. And you would typically think like, wow, you know, access to healthcare wouldn't be that great. But I, I had the benefit of an excellent healthcare, Scott and White, which is a significant nonprofit healthcare system, uh, was founded in my hometown, Temple, Texas. So physicians were community leaders, um, you know, r- really kind of the best and the brightest in the state of Texas were there, whether for residency or, or full-time work. And, um, and and so that that's kind of, you know, probably tucked away as a kid, uh, you know, it, to fast forward to today um, is what you want every town and, and person across the, the country to have, whether you're in a rural or urban environment, Medicare, Medicaid. So, like, it set a standard probably subconsciously of, like, what great looks like. Um, and, and so those would probably be the the, the two um, common threads on, on healthcare. In terms of investing, that was more of a traditional path, you know, always like business, um, um, always like, you know, investing. And then, investment banking into um, a, a firm that uh, was focused on kind of service, healthcare services investment. And I'll tell you the, the first thing I worked on, which is not that, ex, you know, not one to write home about was like the restructuring of a bankrupt sniff. And you really saw the other right. side of reimbursement when you do that. Um, and that was around BBA 97. So kind of just blunt instrument, cut everything, decimated services to, you know, kind of contain costs um, for, for the government. Um, but And then you see these services businesses are rebuilt and some great services were businesses were created from their psychiatric solutions being one of them. And um, when I came aboard uh, to join Annie at Oak in the early 2000s, um, we were looking at Athena Health. So we kind of had, I was influenced a little bit by, you know, seeing these services companies you know, rise from the ashes, providing great, great, great work and led by great entrepreneurs. And then same thing, something like Athena Health come down the road where the internet was really meeting healthcare services and delivering value. Like you could see that first convergence happening in the market. And certainly there are, uh, you know, dozens and and you're, you're leading one today, but a lot more tech, uh, tech enabled healthcare and SaaS businesses out there. But that was, you know, one of the early ones. And it was kind of cool to see that um, early in my career and joining Oak. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing when you uh, think about the, the physical delivery of healthcare, SNF being obviously one of them, uh, primary care clinics being uh, another. I know you were involved in One Medical. Um, and then you think about technology and uh, and the technology markets, which um, in healthcare can be be a little bit small and a little bit niche and you know how do you how do you organize capital to go into those technology markets, and then how do you couple those 
with the workflows and the delivery of healthcare. And one of my frustrations, and I'm curious to hear your, your comments on this, is um, I don't quite feel like healthcare has figured out a way uh, to optimize the use of technology in their businesses, uh, unlike, unlike, let's say, manufacturing as an example. Do, do you agree with that or, 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 or is there a counter to that? No, no, no. I, I agree with that. I think the ones that are successful are folks that understand and kind of respect the workflow because there's like the work, but there, there's also the regulatory framework and all of the other wrapper that comes along with it. And I think that's what can create friction in adoption. Um, as, as you well know, maybe in a manufacturing, it's just all about like driving the bottom line you know, how can I increment, you know, uh, more, more widgets or what have you uh, here? I think it's the confluence of the regulatory framework, in many cases, the ultimate patient care, you know, the legal ramifications of getting this right. And in addition to all of the workflows and, you know, all of those legacy investments that have been made, like there's not going to be, you know, a lot of rip and replace uh, out there unless you have something really compelling and, you know, again, something I, I know you all are doing a good job of in the market. So, um, so there was a, there, there was a, there was a cycle of just the internet coming up, which I think was cool, but we would always try to figure out. I think a lot of what we've seen is sort of the emergence of of real software uh, businesses in healthcare, right? As opposed to what what I would describe as was primarily a tech enabled service market. I think in the nineties and and the aughts, right? Um, what do you think? Where do you think we're headed now? Well, where do you think? How do you think we've evolved to where we are today? And then, where do you think we're going to end up going uh, in terms of the deployment of technology uh, throughout healthcare? Yeah, I, I think you're right on. I mean, it was a lot of tech-enabled solutions, and that was a whole lot better than the status quo. And now we are seeing more pure SaaS. Um, you know, more. API-driven approaches, you know, more modern technology, whether that be the architecture or, and we can certainly kind of dovetail this into generative AI, but even if you think about NLPs and LLMs, I mean, some of that has been around for a while um, and it's maybe getting kind of called something different, but yeah, over the last, call it five years, and we've seen in our own portfolios, I mean, a very sophisticated technology, you know, that's absorbing all of this information, normalizing, and then creating, you know, a much higher utility and doing that through, a you know, software first, last, uh, you know, period approach. And um, that's great to see because these companies are being, uh, are successful um, large stakeholders are comfortable. Like there's always going to be that like growing comfort with this. Like, is this going to pass my security test? You know, am I going to get fired if I use this? You know, I mean, kind of all these like practical, you know, and, 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 and logical questions that are being asked by the, by the customer. But like there are modern tech solutions. They are working developed by people again, that really understand and respect the system. We like getting behind all of that because, even a even what might sound like a very pedestrian use case can be a two hundred billion dollar market, you know, for for an outsider. Like you're just trying to process a claim. I mean, you know, efficiently and accurately. Like, what are you talking about? You can't just like look at my credit card statement, you know, that kind of thing. So, but that's as we know, kind of mul- multiple hundreds of billions of dollars of opportunity. So, I'd like to talk about the opportunities, but. Tell me a little bit about the market for capital today before we get into that. Is it uh, is it a do-nothing market? Is it a buyer's market? Is it a seller's market? Is it a research-oriented market where you're sort of just waiting for things to settle? Because obviously in 20, 
21, 20, 20 parts of 22, even probably early 22, it was a it was inflated market. I I I would argue like it was tough to get your wrap your head around the pricing in the market. Is are we just waiting for people to sort of still settle down and be willing to take in new capital? Where are we? Yeah, I I, I look there. Well, there there's capital out there. I mean, that's been widely reported. Um, we're coming off the heels of the HLTH, the health conference in Vegas. You know, twelve thousand participants, and there was a lot of energy. If I were to compare that to last year in kind of the privately funded uh, kind of landscape, it was more somber. I mean, I think folks were really focusing on their operations, on their teams, on their product development prioritization, their capital structures. You know, there was a bunch of stuff going on. I think now folks seem in a more, um, I would say offensive, but certainly looking more at the growth path forward. Um, as opposed to focusing only on like OPEX management. And so uh, there was, you know, a lot of good energy and are out there raising capital. I think that will build heading into 2024. So so our view is good, great companies are going to get funded and great companies are going to get funded at valuations that are commensurate with, you know, the, the in line with the prior, you know, c- couple years, M- maybe not the peak, like 21 peak, but like, historically speaking, attractive prices and should feel good about that. Um, but there is going to be a lot that's going to either fall by the wayside and could create a great M&A opportunity for folks or combinations, you know, companies that really need to come together for scale over the next couple of years. And I think that'll take two to three years to work itself out again, given how much capital is out there. But I'd say uh, b- better attitude. Companies are getting funded. Companies are going out there, and I'm speaking about the kind of the venture growth market. I mean, the the private equity market is so credit dependent. You know, we'll see how that unfolds. There's there's, ca- there's debt capital out there, but you know, at a different price point than than the past couple of years. Clearly, so uh, that may be a slow slower thaw. But in the venture growth market, yeah, I think things are picking up, picking back up. My read on just looking at your portfolio is it is it looks like your your early stage middle stage and late stage historically. Um, in other words, sort of like if you think you've got a good opportunity at the right price, um, well, you know, as we know, the early stage stuff is uncertain in terms of how long it takes to get out. But like, where do you where do you feel the opportunities are right now? Is it across the whole the whole stage of investing or is it or more early or late stage? I, I think there's more funding activity happening in the early stages. Um, our early stage projects are... Uh, a smaller percentage of our role funds, although it's an important part because we want to always be in that innovation layer. We're typically doing that around entrepreneurs we've worked with or folks that are kind of seasoned, um, you know, multi-time uh, founders slash entrepreneurs. So, you know, those are going to be out there. It's a part of the program. So there's definitely activity there. Um, I'd say the growth to, and, and then the, the rest would be kind of in that growth side. Um, again, the, the the kind of growth buyouts that we've done, there's few or fewer of those out there in the market. But I think that, again, the growth stage is starting to thaw. And I mean, as you uh, rightly identify, we have a very wide mandate, you know, as a firm and by design. I mean, we want to meet the opportunity where it should be met. And sometimes that's going early and sometimes that's going growth and consolidation. Sometimes that's a pipe. Sometimes it's a buyout. Sometimes it's a consolidation. Like, we're a bit agnostic on that and, you know, have done it all. So we like that flexibility, particularly in a market now where things, you know, something's out of favor, but we see long-term opportunity, like 
you know, that's a great place for us to play. And, and having now done this for many decades, we can't do anything from kind of SaaS to services to, you know, tech enabled services. Like, again, it depends on where the opportunity is. So what are you liking now? Where do you think the investment cycle is headed from maturity to startup? Yeah, I mean, every startup has to have an AI in its name, and AI has been around so long. I, I, I don't. I, all of a sudden, everybody talks about it like it's a second coming. But I mean, it's to me, it's like we've been been using the models at least right. to do all kinds of cool stuff for a couple, for you know, twenty years or so, and they get better. Obviously, sure. now that people can play with Chat GPT, they're like, "Wow, this is new. I never imagined this was going to happen." So, um, give me a sense. I'd love to, yeah. I'd love to hear your point of view on, yeah, on where I mean, things I are think- we, we segment the market. Uh, I mean, opportunity, we've done a lot in value-based. Uh, we continue to like, like that. Like we like things we've done in primary care, but also other subspecialties. Uh, we, we do like kind of care delivery with, you know, technology and data and, um, you know, specialized services wrappers there that can kind of handle um, a risk-based construct, but de- deliver like real value, like real clinical savings that will result in um uh you know you know a, a benefit to all of the parties um, most importantly the patient but certainly like a just, just a more aligned economic construct and fee for service so value based remains something of, of great interest to us we do have a big swath of software which um you know something we were just chatting about like we we always are looking for what what can drive an efficiency administratively and clinically in those workflows that you rightly point to uh there's still a lot of work to be done there um and so we we think software continues to be an interesting place for us to play like but is the roi there you know what does the end market look like what is the competitive landscape should there be more of a consolidation than just starting another which is really not our brand like starting another me too like that's really not our 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 play but there could be a consolidation of software to have more to go talk to a payer about or a system about and then our third bucket is uh pharma and you know it's a big end market clearly uh we won't in, we, we don't have, we, we don't invest anymore in, in kind of uh life sciences uh you know products or devices that was something you know from from decades ago but there is a huge opportunity still for data and services that are making development or commercialization uh, of a drug more efficient and effective and they know that's something that you know is top of mind for pharma as they think about preserving margins and also just growing top line through you know more more robust development pipeline um i'd say those latter two categories the one where you see the most ai pop up you know uh workflows clinical administrative yep. and kind of healthcare, and then also you know drug development when you say value-based what what do you think value-based means in terms of the opportunity to invest is it delivery systems is it is it uh software is it analytics where is the value-based hotspot yeah great question i mean i think it can be both so we think about it as like owning the risk dollar like where we have the care delivery you know we're we have we're employing kind of the valuable asset the clinic clinical uh, clinical staff you know physicians um nurses apps etc who are actually providing the care and then how do you equip that uh those professionals like with the best tools to um you know deliver the value that we think will you know align with the goals of whoever we're sharing the risk with and it varies by population it varies by you know geography etc cetera, etc cetera. but like that's what we mean by on one hand value like we are contracting and accountable for the risk and that's not something you do overnight. 
And that's, you know, how those arrangements progress depends a little bit on the opportunity, the management team, the sophistication of the technology and operations that we've put into place. And then there's the enabling layer, which I think was a second part of, you know, what what you were uh, asking about. And yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of folks that want to be enabled to take risk. And that is where the tech and the data comes into play. And you can still build a big, big business. Our, our view is doing that as well. So it's a bit bifurcated. And, and we actually have, you know, companies that, you know, like a, you know, a dispatch, you know, delivers care in the home and they may help a risk-based provider because they can, you know, alleviate hospitalizations by doing kind of what's called hospital in the home and really, frankly, deliver care across acuity levers in the home, lowest cost setting. But again, that could be a value driver for whether it's a managed care company or, you know, a, 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 a value-based, you know, one of those constructs and drive value. Um, but that enabling layer, you know, is another area of opportunity. Can you tell us the one medical story? I, I like that company. Is that something you, because to me, it seemed like it started out as value-based. And I wonder whether that's why Amazon bought it <laughs> at the end of the day. It bought it for probably a different reason, uh, which is maybe access to a retail consumer market. But maybe I'm wrong about that. I'd love to understand uh, how you think that that investment kind of evolved to where it We we got invested in the early days and they had some, uh, you know, Tom at the point at at the time, Tom Lee, uh, uh, founder and CEO. And it was a small company. You think about four units, maybe in San Francisco and just going into New York. And what was attractive there, you know, kind of what catches your eye after seeing so many of these was, you know, one, um, they really were delivering a better consumer experience. Um, and it was the availability in those days, it was kind of the availability of, you know, an appointment, you know, just the look and feel of the clinic, the workflow. So even down to, you know, um, you know, getting greeted. I remember I went in, you know, you kind of secret shop these investments. You go in as a patient. I'm sure I had an ailment, you know, and, uh, you know, you get walked back to right. by the, directly by the physician. So you're entering in notes just like once and not doing a, a lot of steps twice. And everybody in the office was, you know, contributing to the to the productivity of the office, whether that was an administrative task, rev cycle, clinical, you name it. So it was like a very high performing unit, even in the early days really adopting technology to power a lot of that, um, whether that be the captive EMR, the scheduling system, they had in-office phlebotomy. So it was kind of all around convenience and and trying to do as much as you can in that lower cost setting. Um, and that, you know, really stood apart and it, and it should have, frankly, you know, they needed to deliver that value because they were charging, you know, an AMF of, you know, annual, annual membership fee of about a hundred dollars. So, you know, you think about like they were making money, they were delivering margin on fee for service because it was such an efficient platform and practice. And you think about the AMF as just kind of being reinvested in the consumer experience. And so you really did see something that was differentiated, compelling. We liked the fact that, again, the technology was like a smart use of technology to drive more efficiency, more margin and better patient care just on fee for service. Like that was just like an important threshold for us. And then you just look at the United States and go, okay, like this is a huge market to roll out. And I'd say as it progressed, there were a lot of lessons learned on like, what is the right market entry? You know, what's the significance of a partnership with a hospital system or a payer and employer in this market versus this market? And you learn a lot about the differences of one major metro area to the next. You know, San Francisco is clearly a lot different than New York, than Boston, Chicago. And so that was the early progression of the company. But 
you know, fast forward and, you know, you really had kind of a, a, a national uh, company that I, I really do believe is just still scratching the surface. I mean, I'm based in Connecticut and through a partnership with Hartford Healthcare has just, you know, launched a number of clinics in this state. So it's really cool to see it. Uh, you know, c- come to Connecticut, not just be like a major metro, but really kind of a national play here. And over time, certainly offered telemedicine, which was incredibly important, uh, you know, over the past couple of years and more of an omni-channel approach and then other services. So, you know, specific services for women's health, behavioral health. And like you could just see this, the, the engagement level growing with the additional services and technology. And, um, you know, I'm sure with Amazon and all of the hospital partnerships that were uh, driven by Amir, uh, uh, Dan Rubin, the most uh, recent CEO, uh, you know, that's going to make a big difference in terms of kind of national expansion here, clearly. But um, and, and I would just make one last comment. It was one of the first healthcare companies we encountered that measured NPS. And yeah. like that, like nobody knew what MPS was. Like, I think yeah. they would always say like, well, this is the iPhone MPS and this is the one medical MPS. And so like seeing that in healthcare and now, you you know, every company should care about MPS uh, and does, but that was a, a, one of those things in those early meetings that definitely stood out as well. Did you expect it was going to need as much capital when you, when you made the first investment? I mean, I, I know the experience. Okay. So it's like, yeah. like we'll get this thing to EBITDA positive in a, in a year or so. Right. But, but I would imagine did the, the company pivot and say, "Wow, capital's cheap. Let's let's build faster." How did how did that happen? I think there was, you know, always it, it, we knew at the core the unit economic model was a profitable one. You know, particularly when you saw the virality of the word of mouth happening and the you know anchor market of San Francisco. I mean, because a lot of it with the early days was, you know, what is the acquisition cost for volume? You know, prior to the brand being built. But on a fundamental basis, you know, you had a, like a profitable model there. And so that gives you a lot of confidence as you expand. And certainly there are learnings, you know, that happen with any growth company as you enter new markets back to the, you know, every market's a little bit different and like market entry got refined. And, uh, you know, it, it was, it, it just, it, it, if you felt like you were never going to get the lines across like ever, ever, then, you know, <laughs> you want to take a pause. But I think the market opportunity was so significant, felt like the offering was so compelling and differentiated. And other companies have, you know, certainly co- co- emerged over time. But, um, you know, it, it, it does give you confidence raising capital. And we were able to do that, you know, along the way at attractive uh, valuations and ultimately the company went public, uh, as we all know, and and that was acquired. But I think at the heart of it, like there, there's a profitable story there, and it's just a, it's always that balance, right? That you've felt yep. as an investor and, and as somebody running a big company, and what we see is like that the growth versus you know you know investing in growth, <laughs> you know uh, yeah. for, you burn whatever you want to call it is just like a balancing act, and right now it's all about like profitability. And sometimes it's all about growth. And I think the the best place to be is when you have it both, right? And you can kind of put your foot on the yeah. gas when you have the right capital, but also know you can pull back and not really sacrifice top line. And I think that's where the company always found itself along the way. That's cool. Um, last sort of topic I wanted to just cover because you know I I'm sure you like to talk about your favorite deals. So I'll give you the opportunity. Favorite deal you've invested in the last 18 months, if we could sort of maybe even in the last 12 months. I don't really know what you've been up to specifically, but 
Come on, I'll give you a chance to pull. Well, I, you know, I, it's, <laughs> I have a lot. No favorites. Uh, uh, well, okay, so something that just sort of like you know comes to mind. No favorites. Uh, so something that we're doing that I'd say is a little bit different than what Oak has historically done is. Um, We've invested in a, a, a CDMO, a clinical development manufacturing organization uh, wow. in Nashville Year, years ago. So a couple of years back, we partnered with an entrepreneur. We had had a successful outcome with um, uh, Jen Adams. And we spent a year with Jen kind of canvassing the market for an opportunity and, and found a, a, a small uh, CDMO in Nashville. So I wouldn't call it, you know, the life sciences hub that other cities are, but a great healthcare market, generally speaking. And um, we really like this asset. Uh, we love Jen and the team that she's built. And um, what's happening in that market is there's just a dearth of capacity uh, for manufacturing, particularly in our focus area of sterile fill finish, you know, batches for clinical trials. And it's important. It's the lifeblood of any kind of life sciences biotech company that's got a product that's, uh, you know, in, in clinical trials, and then ultimately will be commercialized as finding capacity, high quality capacity for, for these, uh, services. And that's something that its company's name is August, uh, August is focused on. And, What's really been cool to see is what Jen and her team have done, not only with kind of re refurbishing, retooling, reconstructing the existing facility, but also building a significant uh, uh, manufacturing capacity adjacent to our existing facility. And like, there's just so much demand for these services. And um, while it may be kind of heavier CapEx than Oak uh, would typically do, again, the, 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 the market dynamics were so compelling and and Jen and the team um, just so, uh, you know, we, we were so eager to partner with them on this project that it's been um, something that we've invested in a couple of times now. You asked most recently, we, we 18, 18 months ago, we put more capital in because we want to run more lines through the new facility we're building. Um, so we really are leaning into this project. Um, and it, again, it's also cool to see what's happened in Nashville you know, a lot of people are there. We've got a lot of companies there uh, through through um, some great entrepreneurs uh, we backed. But to see kind of a more of a life sciences oriented business really take hold in uh, in Nashville has been really cool to see, and a lot of people moving there to become a part of this. So uh, that's one that I would also say. Lastly, is that's really tangible, right? Because you like you know you can walk, you can see the progress in the construction and the building, and you know you, you can really touch and feel this versus some of the. I software. love that stuff. Yeah, like you can see the ROI on the software, but like this is kind of cool to really see it come to life. And um, you know, we we think they're they're in a good spot. I feel like we learned during the pandemic that we don't make enough uh, pharmaceutical products in the U.S. and North America generally. Um, and I always wondered, like, can we compete in doing it? Is there is there what are there barriers to our, to the ability for us to compete you know, here? Quality, quality. And uh, you're right. There is a dearth of capacity and a lot of excess capacity got soaked up with the vaccine. So so in terms of like getting, you know, again, high quality sterile for finish and they have other, you know, business, uh, other service lines. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of on one hand creates the opportunity, but the other hand is like, you know, an issue that we've got to solve uh, over time as a country uh, to make sure that there is enough enough capacity here. Very cool. Um, last last question. I, all, all, all listeners to this podcast want to meet venture capitalists and investors there. So um, what's the best way to meet you? How do people uh, get get you to look at their deal? Right. Yep. I'm sure you see a lot of stuff. So 
You know, it's yeah, like trying to get a record deal if you're a musician. How do you, <laughs> how do you get well, through to uh, venture capital? You're kind, but, uh, you know, we're <laughs> always eager uh, to, to hear about new ideas. So, Andrew at oakhcft.com. It's that easy. Um, Terrific. Andrew, thanks for the time here. It's a lot of fun yeah. talking to you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me.